This is Party on the Peninsulas, your weekly update on the people and policies leading Michigan, with Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes. Three years ago tomorrow, we saw with our own eyes the violent mob storm the United States Capitol. And trying to rewrite the facts of January 6th, Trump is trying to steal history the same way he tried to steal the election. But he, we knew the truth because we saw it with our own eyes. Trump's mob wasn't a peaceful protest. It was a violent assault. They were insurrectionists, not patriots. They weren't there to uphold the Constitution. They were there to destroy the Constitution. Welcome to Party on the Peninsulas and our first podcast of 2024. I'm LaVar Barnes. The word this week, insurrection. Three years ago, Donald Trump fueled the flames on one of the darkest days in American history when thousands of rioters stormed the United States Capitol. This treasonous act was intended to undermine our democracy and override free and fair elections, and since then, the GOP has never drifted from that goal. Three years later, the fate of our country rests with the 2024 election. The stakes could not be higher here in Michigan. It's easy to forget, in light of all the progress we've made over the past few years, that Michigan was ground zero for the tools that built the insurrection. January 6th must serve as an ever-present reminder that under the wrong leadership, the very foundation of our democracy is at risk. While Michigan Democrats have taken significant steps to protect our democracy and ensure an insurrection like January 6th never happens again, the threat is far from gone. Michigan voters know how high the stakes are this November and will stand with President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Michigan Democrats up and down the ballot as they fight to protect our democracy and defend every American's freedoms. As we observe this anniversary, it's important to remember that after taking control of the state legislature for the first time in 40 years, Michigan Democrats took action in the face of the January 6th insurrection and have done vital work to protect democracy in our state, including expanding our automatic registration system, repealing our arcane 1895 ban on hiring transportation to the polls on Election Day, establishing nine days of in-person voting before Election Day, setting penalties for intimidating or preventing election officials from performing their duties, allowing Michigan clerks to begin processing absentee ballots before Election Day, and strengthening our state election certification timeline and duties to remove any ambiguities. And we have one more safeguard in place, the best Secretary of State in the nation, Jocelyn Benson. If you missed our discussion with her last month, check out the podcast from our archives. The voice is clear. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past, not the future. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy, put himself in power. Our campaign is different. For me and Kamala, our campaign is about America. It's about you. It's about every age and background that occupy this country. We begin, as always, with an update on the political and policy news impacting Michigan with MDP's Dorian Tyatt. In the news this week, the final jobs data released from 2023 shows the U.S. labor market remained resilient in December, 
with companies creating 216,000 positions last month, capping a year of steady job gains. The latest numbers exceeded the 173,000 jobs that were added in November, surpassing economists' expectations and fueling optimism that the economy can achieve a so-called soft landing. The unemployment rate remained unchanged at 3.7% in December, extending the streak of 23 consecutive months with a rate below 4%. The U.S. economy will add 2.9 million jobs by 2023. This is less than the rapid climb of 2021 and 2022, but it is a greater gain than in the years leading up to the pandemic. Last month, wages increased by 4.1% compared to December 2022. America's spending on the construction of new factories is surging. Why it matters? The Biden administration's signature legislation, particularly the CHIPS Act and bipartisan infrastructure law, has spurred a surge in construction spending that's buoyed the economy, according to a report in Axis. Manufacturing-related construction hit a $210 billion annual rate in November, more than triple the average rate in the 2010s according to just-released census data. All that spending is driving an increase in construction hiring. Job openings in construction increased by 43,000 last month, according to BLS data, and are up by 111,000 from last year. Being president was very profitable for Donald Trump, despite the Constitution's ban on accepting money or gifts from foreign governments. During his first two years in office, Trump's businesses received at least $7.8 million from 20 foreign governments, most of it from China according to new documents released by House Democrats. What's more, the scope of the examination was relatively narrow. Oversight Committee Democrats focused only on four Trump-owned properties, Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas, Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue in New York, and Trump World Tower at 845 United Nations Plaza in New York and only covered two of the four years he was in the White House. The Republican-controlled House Appropriations Committee has crafted 12 partisan government spending bills that Chairwoman Kay Granger boasted are the most conservative appropriations bills in history. The bills, according to analysts, would hit minority communities the hardest in the effort to shield the wealthy from higher taxes. Mark Morial head of the National Urban League, a civil rights and urban advocacy organization, dismissed the GOP budget cuts as a large list of politically and racially motivated special interest initiatives, adding, quote, blame the poor, blame the blacks, and blame the Latinos for fiscal problems, end quote. Among the program slash Republicans proposed food stamps reductions for the poor, termination of a 32-year-old Healthy Star program to battle infant mortality, and a 67% funding cut to rehabilitate and build affordable housing units. The latest on multiple Michigan Republican corruption scandals, Ann and Rob Menard, who worked for former Michigan House Speaker Lee Chatfield, were arraigned in court as they face a series of charges stemming from their alleged misappropriation of funds. Not guilty pleas were entered for both on their behalf during the hearing. 
Chatfield, a Republican from Levering, was State House Speaker from 2019 to 2020. During Chatfield's time as Speaker, Rob Menard served as his Chief of Staff, while Ann Menard was Director of External Affairs for him. Attorney General Dana Nessel's office alleges the couple misappropriated funds from multiple entities, including social welfare, nonprofits, and campaign committees. Then-President Donald Trump's campaign directly orchestrated the filing of a certificate signed by 16 Michigan Republicans that falsely claimed he won the state's 2020 election, according to internal campaign emails obtained by the Detroit News. The documents, which have become part of Attorney General Dana Nessel's ongoing investigation into the slate of false electors, show that Trump's campaign staff helped coordinate the Republicans gathering inside state party headquarters on December 14, 2020. Then, Trump's team prepared the official mailing of the false certificate to Vice President Mike Pence and the National Archives, according to the emails. State Senator Kristen McDonald Rivet of Bay City, who has held positions in state and local government with nonprofit organizations, has announced she will run to replace outgoing United States Representative Dan Kildee, Kildee, who has represented the area around Flint, Saginaw and Bay City since 2015, announced in November he would not run for another term next year after a health scare. The district, Michigan's 8th, has been trending more Republican in recent years and is widely considered a toss-up without Kildee in the race. McDonald Rivet's campaign, in announcing her run, noted the competitive makeup of the district, but also said she begins the race with significant organizing and name ID advantages, given that her current state senatorial district, which she won for the first time two years ago, makes up about a third of the congressional district. Detroit recorded 252 homicides last year, its lowest total since 1966, while non-fatal shootings declined for the fourth straight year, according to preliminary statistics released by Detroit police. Overall, violent crime in Detroit fell 1.6% from 2022-2023, with carjackings dropping 33.5% to a level unseen since the term carjacking was coined in 1991. Even before he's been convicted of a crime, Donald Trump has promises of a presidential pardon from his top GOP rivals. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley both say that if they are elected, they would pardon the former president should he be convicted of any of the 91 felony charges he's currently facing. DeSantis and Haley argued in separate campaign stops last week that extending clemency to Trump would be in the country's best interest. Both had previously signaled they were leaning toward issuing a pardon, but their recent statements were the most definitive yet and left little room for doubt just weeks before the first nominating contest in January. Links to these stories and other articles of interest are on our website, partyonthepeninsulas.com. For Michigan Democratic Party headquarters in Lansing, I'm Dorian Tyler. The Michigan State Housing Development Authority, better known as MISHTA, estimates the state is short about 190,000 homes. That lack of supply is pushing up costs and making housing increasingly unaffordable. 
With this crisis at hand, the state is trying to find innovative ways to meet housing needs. Ann Hovey, the executive director of MISHTA, says, quote, we have people scrounging for housing, end quote. The problem is multifaceted. An aging population means the average household size has decreased, according to Hovey. So even though Michigan's population growth is on a decline, the number of households grew from 3.8 million to 4 million in the past decade, census data shows. Another contributing factor, vacation homes, eating away at supply. Half of the country's vacation homes or second homes are concentrated in eight states, including Michigan, according to the National Association of Home Builders. In six Michigan counties, more than half the housing stock is second homes. That creates a housing crunch for full-time residents. Democrats in the legislature are working tirelessly to come up with solutions. One of the leaders in that effort is Traverse City Representative Betsy Kofia. She discusses that challenge and possible solutions with our Walt Sorg. Representative Kofia, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. I know from our previous discussions, you've been working on the housing issue for a long time. It's especially critical in areas with a high percentage of vacation homes, which is putting a lot of pressure on the whole housing market. What are some of the things that you see the legislature being able to do to alleviate this housing crisis? Sure. Good morning, Walt. It's so good to be back with you. I'm happy to be here. So, yes, uh, this was a huge issue uh, for me going all the way back in my district to when I was a county commissioner. I served two terms on the Grand Traverse County Commission and Housing, childcare, broadband, mental health, those were some of the biggest issues we were hearing about looking for some solutions on at that time. Then when I ran, my team and I knocked 45,000 doors across the, the 103rd, which is Leelanau County, half of Grand Traverse, and a little bit of Benzie County. And as you mentioned, we're a geographically blessed and beautiful part of the world. Lots of folks want to be here, and it, and it really has always been more expensive to live here, but the, the, Vacation rentals and some of the other pressures that we've seen um, have really added pressure to the housing stock. So when we knocked uh, those 45,000 doors, easily one of the top issues that would come up, whether I was in the city or out in some of the more rural parts of the county, was housing. I, I remember I had a, a young man out in Maple City, which is in Leelanau County. It was in October, and he seemed like, why are you on my porch? But the minute I mentioned something about housing, he stepped out on his porch and that I'm a builder and I'm building houses all over this region, but I got three workers who are living in a campground right now because they can't afford a roof over their own head. I have, my hospital is now offering five figure bonuses and a year's worth of housing that they pay for. And my school districts are literally banding together to build housing because they've got teachers retiring and they can't seem to, they're having folks interview for and accept a position and then have to rescind the offer exactly because they can't find housing. So that was a long way of saying, yes, it's definitely a, a pretty significant issue in my region. And I came in with that focus. It is a big issue for a lot of reps across the state. So we've been talking about it since before the term started. One of the things we were able to do this past year that I was really excited about, and it has already gone into law and is already starting to be used by local communities. It's not the magic wand fixed by any means, but it is, it's a tool to put on the table for local communities. So when I was a county commissioner, 
we had something called brownfield redevelopment funds. And these are funds to help re, I'm sure, revitalize blighted or obsolete parts of the area that aren't being used. The Brownfield Fund wasn't permitted by state law to be used for housing. It was against state statute. And we were able in the Economic Development and Small Business Committee that I'm on, we worked on that issue and our housing subcommittee did. And we changed the law and it passed with strong support from both sides of the aisle to expand Brownfield funds to be able to be used for housing. So I've already heard from folks in my region, some of the counties that hadn't used their Brownfield fund in very long time have already dusted it off and have active projects. It's one piece of the puzzle, but that is one that I'm excited about. Another that made it through the Senate and made it through my the committee I'm on, Economic Development and Small Business, and I'm hoping we can take up early this next year, is a bill that deals with what they call missing middle housing. This is a Senator McDonald Rivet bill. And essentially, it would expand funds that the Michigan Housing Development Authority can receive and, and utilize for what's called missing middle. So it's up to 120% of area median income and allow them to fund those kinds of housing projects. And this is what is missing middle. That's just a, a nebulous term, unless you really think to look at that a little more closely. I was at a coffee hour and I had somebody raise their hand and say, well, I'm the missing middle. She was a nurse. Her husband's a nurse. It's teachers, it's firefighters, it's first responders. It's a lot of folks making a middle-class wage, but are being squeezed out of this market. So the missing middle bill, and I'm hopeful we can pass it with bipartisan support early this term, would expand the funding that is uh, allows Mishta to invest in those missing middle projects. And critically, and lastly, I know this is a lot, but I do think about this issue a lot. And you asked, one of the things that it does that is especially interesting to my region we have a lot of smaller communities and some limitations that, that come along with that. We have small downtowns. Currently, under Mishta's regulations, the missing middle, you can only use the funds if it's in, in a downtown area or geographically right next to a downtown area. That really limits my small communities up here from accessing some of these missing middle funds. And so this would, this bill would change that and decouple it and allow those funds to be used uh, in areas that are not right in or right next to a downtown area. So my local folks are interested in that, supportive of that. That was a lot, but <laughs> again, it it, is. it's a big, wide and deep problem. And we have to be really look, getting down into the weeds to look at what are the tools that we can use to address the issue. It also makes the point very clear that this is not just an issue for low-income communities where yep. there's not a lot of investment in housing. It is a problem in communities across the state, Republican and Democratic, something you should be able to get some bipartisan support on. Are you hearing that from your colleagues? So the Brownfield redevelopment expanding to housing is a great example of just what you said. And you're right. This is a this is not a red issue. This is not a blue issue. This is not a rural or an urban or a suburban. This is an everywhere issue. And so we were able to get bipartisan support for that Brownfield expansion to include housing last year. And I believe there is, a. am feeling optimistic, and I know the speaker mentioned it on his recent interview with you on this same topic, but I am optimistic that maybe the missing middle and some of the other pieces that we're working on addressing housing should be able to get some bipartisan support. We just need to get these tools deployed to our communities to let them actually take them and use them to address the issue on the ground. I've read that in many parts of the nation, the problem is being exacerbated by investors buying up housing so that they can use them as either as rental units on a family by family basis or 
through short-term rentals, Airbnb and the other companies that provide vacation rentals. In your area, especially in which it would be very attractive to own an Airbnb unit, is that adding to the problem? So it's funny you mentioned that because I just this morning had somebody that I follow, thought leader that I follow, post something just along those lines about the number of rentals that are being bought up by pretty large management companies across the country. And that is something we definitely need to wrap our arms around. Yes, it absolutely impacts my region. And something about my region that I'm always very sensitive to, Walt, is like I said, it's it's a destination location. It's a desirable place to live. And it's always been a little pricier to live in, but it has really gotten significantly more expensive. And the rent have gotten significantly more expensive over the last several years, especially. And when you think about our economy in my region, there's a lot of tourism. There are a lot of seasonal jobs. We really rely. Look, my mom cleans houses for a living. I've worked in the service industry. We rely on our service economy and our workers to hold up and power this region's economy. And the pressures on rent prices is going right at their ability to, to, to function within this economy. So yes, this, that is one of the pieces that, that I'm constantly thinking about. And I've been in very active conversation with any and all partners in the region that from the chamber to the nonprofits and talking to the impacted folks themselves to, and I feel a lot of urgency. This is something we've got to continue to deploy resources to, to address the big management company question. We're really going to have to figure out how to tackle that one. What about the availability of labor for building new units? In many parts of the country, because of the controversies over immigration, builders and other industries are finding it very difficult to find a lower level skill, the labor, as well as the, the skilled trades. Is that an issue you're hearing about from the contractors in your area? Labor means people, right? It means workers. And remember that story I told you at the beginning, that young man who was a builder out in Maple City, three of his workers were living in a campground, right? Like, the, the labor issue is absolutely real and those workers need housing they can afford too. Uh, so yes, it is absolutely tying. And my regional chamber alliance has housing and childcare as some of their top policy priorities because it is so directly impacting a huge percentage of our employers ability to hire and keep uh, workers. So lots of moving parts here. But again, I always look at it as what can we do at the state level? How can we be a partner to local communities as they're maybe looking at changing zoning and having some flexibility to build more units where traditionally it was only allowed single family? How do we be an active partner uh, in helping them tackle this issue? People need housing. They need a place to live to even be able to then build houses, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It seems rather ironic, but the fact that temporarily Democrats have lost their majority means that anything that goes through for the next two, three months has to be bipartisan, clears the table for you. A lot of issues that may be a little bit more partisan are going to have to wait until later in the year. So you've got the availability of time to deal with this issue. Yeah. And what's interesting for me is I'm the only state level Democratic rep in my region for quite a ways. I don't want to say 100 miles in any direction, but maybe close to that. And I have been working closely with my senator for the region, who is a Republican Senator Jamoose, my colleague who's right across. He has the other half of my home county, Grand Traverse. And for us, we've been working on some of these issues together all along, but I would hope 
we would have even more space to work on some of those areas of agreement over the next few months. I choose, I certainly look at it as an opportunity and I'm cautiously optimistic we can rise to that challenge. Sounds like a great jobs opportunity too, with the demand being there. Somebody's got to build these things. Yeah. But again, and it's making sure that the workers can actually find housing themselves, which is why I'm excited to deploy things like the Brownfield Redevelopment Expansion to give communities the ability to build some of the housing stock and work with developers who need need to be able to make the math work to actually build more housing for folks. Representative Betsy Kofia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for your leadership on this issue. Thank you. It's a critical issue to my region and I'm determined to stay in it and we're going to keep working at it and come up with some strong solutions. Thanks, Walt. That's a wrap for our first podcast of 2024. Next week, we'll talk about several important issues with Attorney General Dana Nessel, including protecting consumers from fraud, battling utility rate hikes, and combating political and public corruption. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Lavora Barnes. Have a great week. Paid for by the Michigan Democratic Party, 606 Townsend, Lansing, Michigan, 48933.